You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that there is such a thing as a music mind meld. It turns out when you watch live music together with other people, your brain synchronizes with theirs. And that brain bonding is linked with having a better time when you're listening to music. And this comes from neuroscientists at Western University in Canada. It's actually London, Canada, because they name things weird up here. And they split people into two different groups. And some of them watched a live concert, some watched a recording of a concert, and some watched the recording with a large audience or just a few other people. They did this wearing electrodes on their head, EEG caps, looking incredibly cool. What they found is that the delta brainwaves of audience members who watched the music live were more synchronized than people in the other two groups. And these delta brainwaves fall in a frequency range that corresponds roughly with the beat of the music, which means that maybe the beat of the music is driving synchronicity, which would drive all those weird ancient drumming tribal practices that we keep finding across almost every old culture on the planet. And the new findings are just a reminder that we are social creatures and doing things all by yourself isn't always the right thing to do. So maybe go to a live concert because, well, science says you should, and it's kind of cool. This was this came out of the Cognitive Neuroscience Society is where I found that, that research for you. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. And as we get into today's show, I'd love it if you went to bulletproof.com slash iTunes and just left a quick review for this because today's episode is going to be awesome. So you can actually review it before the episode because it's going to be that good. <laughs> today's guest is none other than Dr. Peter Atia. Uh, Dr. Adia grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I really like his work because he's a mechanical engineer and applied math guy who wanted to be an aerospace engineering guy, you know, go to space kind of thing until he volunteered at a children's hospital. So he decided he'd get an MD from Stanford, trained in surgery for five years at Johns Hopkins, two years at the NIH as a surgical oncology fellow at the National Cancer Institute. And then, because that's what they always do, he went on to become a consultant at the global management firm called McKinsey, which is like the top of the top for consulting people, and said, well, that wasn't enough. I'll go back into healthcare and start NUCI, the Nutrition Science Institute that funded human clinical trials in nutrition and metabolic disease. And I believe NUCI, the other guy there, was Gary Tobbs, right? Mm -hmm. And Gary Tobbs is actually uh, one of the original sort of keto writers and also a guy who introduced me to my very first book agent years ago when he spoke in my nonprofit. So anyway, I'm, I'm a fan, Peter. And uh, the fact that you're an engineering mind turned medical mind who can solve consulting things means that you're going to think about everything differently uh, compared to the average human being, which is awesome because who wants to be average anyway? <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, you're welcome. How was that for an intro? That was that was a little over the top. What did I miss? Well, well, I, I don't think you missed anything. I think it was just <laughs> more than they needed. But <laughs> Well, there you go. The, the point here is I, I like to interview people who are, just think differently and are, are working to really change things and kind of change the game. And I think you're one of those guys and, and you've 
you've really thought about medicine uh, in a very different way than I've come across uh, almost uh, anyone else. And what I wanted to talk with you about is kind of how you got to where you are, but I want to talk something about human longevity. I've been very public about saying, I'm going to live to at least 180 years old. And as someone who's really talked with a lot of the the top people in the field of this, uh, and someone who's been through that problem of, you know, you were 40 pounds overweight and problems with cholesterol and things that I had, metabolic syndrome, someone who's hacked it, uh, but maybe more knowledgeable than I am because you're a practicing doctor. Uh, Am I going to make it? I don't know. I mean, I think if we wanted to really talk about that uh, rigorously, you'd have to you'd have to think of it not so much in a binary sense, yeah. but in a probabilistic sense. Yes. And I would say that there have only been a handful of uh, changes in our understanding of longevity that have led to what I would call step function increases in lifespan. So um, the first thing is you have to acknowledge that if you, how old are you, Dave? Uh, I'm 45. Okay. Oh, so we're the exact same age. I'm 45. Cool. So for you and I to live uh, to be 180 it will not happen on the basis of business as usual. Correct. So it requires a step function improvement, not an incremental improvement in lifespan extension. So when you look at the previous examples of this, of which there are several, but probably the most recent was the introduction of germ theory uh, and the understanding of how that works and you know systemic antibiotics and things like that. We haven't had one since. So we're, we're, we're certainly due for one or more of these things. So the, the way I would think about this, if I were going to evaluate it probabilistically, I'd say question one is what is the probability that in our lifetime we will see one or more of these step function improvements and happy to talk about what I think some of those may or yes. may not be. And then, and then secondly, absent that, or if those come about, you know, what's the likelihood that we are still sitting around doing well enough are healthy enough to actually be able to exploit those yes. things. So I guess it's hard for me to say, you know, and I know you weren't asking, you know, you know, you're, it's sort of a bit glib, but it's an important question because it's a question that I think, um, speaks to the nature of how difficult it is to sort of see into the future. If, 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 if anything has been taught to us by history, it's that we are notoriously horrible at predicting the future. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Uh, so uh, here's my thinking, and, and I want you to, to dissect this and tell me where uh, you disagree or you do agree. And uh, uh, partly this is enlightened self-interest, but also I think for people listening, uh, I, I would like to inspire uh, them to think maybe this is possible because if you don't think something's possible, you're probably not going to do it. The way I look at it is we have enough examples of people who live to about 120 so I'll say that's achievable and doable with what we have now. It doesn't happen that often, but if you start 80 plus years before uh, uh, you, you think you'd hit 120 and you start minimizing the things that cause mitochondrial harm, things that cause aging, and you basically take care of the hardware you've got to the best of your abilities, you increase your chances of being around and being uh, healthy. Uh, towards those those advanced ages, not having Alzheimer's, not having cancer, not having heart disease, diabetes, Parkinson's, ALS, dementia, high blood pressure, all those things that, that are manageable. If you catch them very early on, you can take uh, uh, course corrections long before they become really serious and cause other damage in the system. Uh, managing just inflammation levels in general, things like that. So, 
And that said, I also drive a, a heavy vehicle because uh, physics is part of living a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, if we get in a car accident, I'm probably going to be the one who walks away and I don't want to be rude about it. But <laughs> if you're driving a really light car and you want to live to 180, you're doing it wrong. Uh, at least drive a really safe light car if you're going to do that. So that's half the equation. The other half of the equation is, will we have- well, Before before okay. we leave that yeah. half, though, I want to say one thing, not to be the party pooper, but- uh, you're absolutely correct. There are certainly plenty of examples of people who live to be 100 or beyond, and we we, we give them a special name, which, of course, you know as centenarians. They're about 0.4% of the population. So four out of 1,000 people are going to live to be 100 or longer in currently, meaning I can't say what that number is going to be of people born today, but of people coming into that field of maturity, it's four in 1,000. But here's what we do know about them, Dave. They're not doing jack shit. Exactly. Be, like they're not doing anything <laughs> right. to stack the odds in their favor. This is a pure genetic lottery. So we have a little bit of a true, true and unrelated here. So it's true that there are people who live to be 100, 120. And it's true that you can do a bunch of things to exact the outcome you've just described, which is, you know, can I do things to reduce mitochondrial injury? Can I do things to reduce inflammation? Yes, 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 yes. Those two are parallel and and seemingly at this point in time unrelated. So the the old joke in longevity research is the single most important thing you can do is pick the right parents. Amen. Right now, we know that those centenarians on average are doing things worse than the rest of us. They're actually a little bit more likely to smoke, a little bit less likely to exercise, a little bit less likely to eat well. And so their longevity is actually despite their lifestyle, not because of it. So fortunately, this this problem has been studied pretty extensively. And we have a pretty good sense of what the genes are that are offering those people protection. And again, I don't think it's necessarily that interesting to go into every which one of those genes. But whether you look at these genes. So for example, they might have hypofunctioning APOC3 genes or hypofunctioning PCSK9 genes, or they're more likely to have an APOE2 versus an APOE3 or 4. We could rattle off about a dozen genes that Mm -hmm. seem to come up consistently in these people. I think the more interesting, though probably less sexy insight from that is all of those genes, with one exception, there's only one that is the THSR that I can't entirely make this case for, but of all the others, they all offer protection from one of the major chronic diseases. Yes. So they basically, you know, centenarians get the same diseases the rest of us get, and they'd actually die in almost the same distribution, uh, although they get slightly more heart disease and slightly less cancer. They just seem to get the diseases about 20 years later. And so step one, if you want to live to be 180 or reserve the right to play that game (laughs) is, do everything in your power to avoid the onset of atherosclerosis, uh, which means sort of anything that predisposes you to heart disease or stroke, anything that predisposes you to cancer or Alzheimer's disease. Because those are, statistically speaking, along with accidents, as you pointed out, kind of for most people who make it to 40 who don't smoke, um, those, are, those are more likely to be your, uh, your downfalls. Uh, amen, brother, on, on that front. <laughs> so we are, uh, we're aligned on our thinking on that. And when you look at each of those genes uh, that that are overexpressed in those people who live a long time, or you might even just argue properly expressed <laughs> in those people, they each cause changes in the in the metabolism. And I believe that we can cause we can do some of those similar things by 
changing our environment, using epigenetics or supplements or lifestyle modifications or things like that. So if we know one gene causes certain things to happen downstream from it, can we replicate those as best we can using technology? And I'm thinking that not perfectly, but can we at least tilt the odds in our favor? I'm thinking if I do that, I should be able to get to 100 and still be highly functioning, probably even 120, uh, given that I'm willing and able to do all sorts of bizarre things that most people haven't heard of um, that you know can, in certain circumstances, be the right thing to do. So, for instance, if I'm injured, I probably have the ability to recover more rapidly than the average person because I have access to stem cell people and just because I'm really fortunate. Uh, so I'm I'm hopeful on that front. But I'm also betting like 50% of, of this increase, you know, the other the other 60 years that you stack on the 120, that, that that's going to come from a step function, that, that we are now using machine learning, uh, we have more data than we ever had, the human genome is mapped, uh, and we're, we're really finally starting to understand epigenetics. Um, I, I have substantial concerns about mismatch between mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA, uh, which uh, if you're listening... You got your mitochondria from your mom, the power plants in your cells that also are the things that, that, that seem to monitor the environment to trigger the epigenetic changes. And you also have this nuclear DNA, which is like the wiring for your heart, not the wiring, but the, the plans for your hardware, how, how your body is going to be built. And the problem is if you have the power plant from, you know, uh, uh, from say, a, a commercial building and you've got the physical plans for a home and those are mismatched, that might affect your aging. And I think that's probably something a lot of us have. And, and there's emerging science about that. So maybe we need to hack our mitochondrial DNA. I'm all over doing that. I just think that's one of those step function changes that might come over the next, you know, 50 years, which seems to be enough time for me uh, to live to 180. Uh, is, is that, I mean, over a 50 year time span, do you forecast at least one of these step function things? Well, again, I try to I try to avoid forecasting because I, every time I do it, I, I seem to be wrong. So, and there's two things to forecast, right? Which is one is what is the plausibility of right. something happening? And then the second thing is how long will it take to come online? I think we do a slightly better job at forecasting. Well, maybe this is near future. In my own biased way, I think both of those are really hard. I'm actually on this one more willing to place a bet on some things actually happening than actually trying to understand when they could yeah. happen. So for example, I do believe we will absolutely be able to manipulate the TOR pathway, mm -hmm. which is in my opinion, the single most important pathway in biology. And I believe we will able to be able to manipulate it with much more specific molecules than we can do today. In other words, we can do things that are going to be very specific in the future that today we can't really do. Now, I also have the, the fortune of knowing the people who work on that problem mm -hmm. day in and day out. And therefore, I have, you know, probably a little bit of a share some of their humility and how complicated that is. I mean, nature took a billion years to make that system. So a couple of whiz kids from MIT don't necessarily get to undo yes. that in a decade. But I think that, that I view that as a very plausible step towards longevity. Uh, another example that I think is actually going to be a more challenging problem is going to be uh, reprogramming senescent cells. Mm -hmm. So certainly we've had proof of concept along that, and there's companies like Unity BioHealth that are actually doing really exciting work in that space. But, you know, I think to get to the point where, you know, Dave Asprey can show up and say, hey, I want all my senescent cells zapped, that, that sort of the engineering problem that comes after the proof of concept. And so I think that to me is much harder to understand. I think the third thing that interests me the most is probably 
given that atherosclerosis seems to be the only inevitable disease in our entire evolution. So, you know, once people reach their eighth or ninth decade, if they haven't got cancer or dementia, their odds of those things actually start to go down. So the only disease that increases in its risk monotonically without fail is atherosclerosis. And so I know, unfortunately, it is really popular in the blogosphere to talk about how heart disease has nothing to do with LDL and it has nothing to do with cholesterol and all of these things. But the reality of it is that's just patently false. I mean, this is clearly a disease that is driven by lipoproteins, inflammation, and endothelial dysfunction. And those things, when, ex when you are exposed to those things in a time-dependent manner, uh, your risk of those diseases almost universally just goes up as time goes on. So while age is the single greatest risk for atherosclerosis, it's the confluence of the lipoproteins, the inflammation, and the endothelial dysfunction that provide the explanation for why. So how would one, so, so, in other, so taking a step back to get to your step function, no step function improvement in longevity can come without addressing atherosclerosis. This problem must be addressed. If you want to live to 180, we absolutely have to fundamentally change the way your coronary arteries and other arteries interface with lipoproteins, oxidized cholesterol, and the like. And so when you start to look at what nanoparticles could potentially do, mm -hmm. if you could build nanoparticles that can replicate the functionality of an HDL particle, which is to say those things that could enter the subendothelial space and delipidate oxidized sterols, clean out foam cells, that's a step function. Now you've changed the course of the game. And you might even get a two for one because if you can, if you can, if you can take nanoparticles and actually start having them behave like T cells, you now start to get enhanced immune function, which probably is going to play a pretty important role in reducing our risk of cancer. So I, again, I think all of these things from an engineering standpoint are right. plausible. Um, and I, I, my view is, uh, just being a relatively unsophisticated longevity guy, unsophisticated in that, like, all I talk about is the basic, you know, blocking and tackling of food and, you know, exercise and sleep and stress management and drugs and supplements. I mean, nothing really unheard of in that tool space. The goal is, can you generate even that extra 10 to 15 years above business as usual? Because it might be that that period of time is what's necessary to allow you to be around for the step function. This is that idea of, of achieving escape velocity, the, the way Ray Kurzweil talks about, where if you can just live long enough and be healthy enough long enough, uh, technology will save us. <laughs> and uh, I, I think there's merit to that line of thinking, which is we don't know when we're going to get these step functions. And I'm, I'm not sure that I agree it's just a step function. There's probably, in fact, I wouldn't say probably, we know that there's more than just atherosclerosis, although it's, it's a major thing. Uh, and you know, for instance, reducing cancer risk and Alzheimer's, these other big things we talked about. And there's many different pathways that we understand now. So what I'm thinking is, is that there are some things that are linear functions, but not step functions. So you got a year here, you got two years here, you got three years here, you reduce your risk by you know, 50% on this, but you didn't eliminate it. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that gets us to the point where there are some really big things like engineered molecules or, you know, the ability to, uh, to do things that cause your body to grow new body parts, for instance. I, I mean, I've, I've seen some phenomenal things with stem cells. A, a family member was going to go in for cardiac surgery for a heart valve problem. And uh, six weeks after he had stem cells, his own cells in, introduced intravenously, 
his heart spontaneously healed. And the surgeon went in uh, and did a, a scan before they were going to book him for surgery and was like, uh, you don't have this problem anymore. <laughs> so there are things like that that are happening today. And who knows how long it'll be before we can you know, resurface our arteries uh, using uh, using things that we just don't know about today. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some biological manipulations we can do that maybe don't require artificial molecules. Uh, I could be wrong. I just feel like we're getting more and more control over our, our cellular biology. So there's there's at least hope whether I'd, I'd be betting only on that. No, <laughs> like I'm, I'm doing everything I can think of probably like you are. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that's going to increase the odds and I'm willing to die trying to, uh, which I think happens to all of us. Yeah. Um, what do you think about stem cells as a part of this equation for living a long time? Are you bullish bearish? Pretty neutral at this point. Frankly, okay. I think, um, I haven't really been that impressed with, uh, the data thus far. I think the challenge when you, uh, tr try to assess something like that, even inside of clinical settings, uh, clinical trials rather, um, is the anecdotes tend to speak louder than, than, than probably the real data. So, um, I, you know, it's a question I get asked a lot because a number of my patients either go through stem cell therapy or PRP, especially around orthopedic stuff. Yep. And, and my view is, you know, you have to evaluate two risks, right? Which is what's the risk of doing this and what's the risk of not doing this. And so, Again, I, it's hard for me to provide a blanket sort of statement on my views on this, but sure. with each patient, I sort of spend time going through the, what's the problem you're trying to have addressed? If we do nothing, or if we do everything that we think we can outside of doing this, what is the natural history of this going to look like? And then how does that compare to what we think is the risk of doing something with stem cells? So this strikes me as a problem that's a little bit harder than we think it is right now, which mm -hmm. doesn't, isn't, that's, that's obviously stating the obvious, but Honestly, David, just speaks to a bigger issue, which is biology is freaking hard. Like it's way yes. harder than physics. It's way harder than chemistry. It's way harder than mathematics and in a different way. Right. Right. I mean, you know, uh, those things are slightly more ordered, slightly neater. Um, it's slightly easier to differentiate between convergent and divergent systems. And biology is, I don't know, we just have like the most still relatively crude understanding of it. Uh, and that's, of course, the fun of it. I mean, that's, yeah. in many ways, that's the fun of being in any field. I mean, when you look at what physicists went through at the turn of the last century, so going from the 19th and the 20th century, I mean, there could not have been a better time to have been a physicist. Now, I'm not saying that to be disparaging to someone who's a physicist today, because obviously physics is still exciting. But its amazing era was 100 years ago. And in that sense, I think we are entering that space in biology, but that also speaks to how little we know at this moment in time. And, and hopefully what, you know, a hundred years from now, maybe you'll be interviewing somebody else and the, you know, you guys will wax philosophically about, oh my God, do you remember how little we understood, you know, fill in the blank stem cells or whatever back in 2018? You said once the science of longevity and the art of longevity are basically an interdiscipline of engineering, uh, which is not something that you'll hear most doctors say. And I think it speaks to your training as an engineer before you went to medical school. And a lot of your answers here sound like an engineer more so, <laughs> uh, more so than your typical MD. Uh, how, I mean, how do you reverse engineer that problem if you put on your pure engineering hat, but with your set of medical knowledge? And we, we've talked about, you know, you have to solve atherosclerosis and, and probably cancer and Alzheimer's, but uh, like, like, what's the first step to reverse engineering? 
Well, I mean, I think it always starts with defining the objective. So you want to know where you need to go. So if you're trying to build a bridge and you want to cross this thing, you sort of have to understand the basic parameters of where you want to go, which is the bridge needs to be this long, the span needs to be this wide, it needs to be this high, it needs to be able to bear this load, et cetera, et cetera. And then you sort of, you work backwards from that, that position of understanding. So with respect to longevity, I mean, I think the first thing I, I had this discussion with a patient this morning, and it's always a morbid discussion, but it's like, how are you going to die? Let's, you know, we've now got a really good sense of what your genome looks like. We've got a really good sense of your ha family history. And, and I mean, I think even a, a geneticist will probably agree with me on this, though they might not, that a really, really well done family history provides far greater insight into the genetic risks that are predisposing a people to death than a whole genome sequence. But the point is, once you finish doing a complete risk assessment, you then should be able to start answering the question, which is, if you don't change anything in what you're doing today, this is kind of how you're likely to die. This is the probability distribution map of your demise. So you have to start with that. And the reason you have to start with that is you have to know how to back out of that. And not everybody's going to be the same here. And that's why there really isn't a one size fits all. This gets to your earlier point about this is where the art comes in. The art is in taking the scientific principles. What are those principles? Inflammation, as a general rule, is bad. <laughs> Immune function, as a general rule, is good. You know, T-cells do good things, and, you know, macrophages, when they run amok, do bad things. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Like, there are these general principles, but, you know, if someone has a, two copies of an ApoE4 gene, and their family history is also suggestive of a high degree of penetrance of these things, then you know, avoiding, uh, avoiding neurodegenerative disease is the highest priority. And it might even come at the exception uh, of increasing or allowing an increase in the risk of something else like cancer. So that's what I mean by reverse engineering is you sort of see where the iceberg is, you see where you are, and you ask the question, how far am I from the iceberg? How fast am I traveling? How much do I need to shift the direction of my ship? And what new iceberg does that put me in the, in the, in the lineup? Do you think we have enough knowledge yet to for the average person listening to know uh, sort of what, what the first iceberg is you know the, the the first big problem or is it really just a family history sort of thing i i think to me a really really good family history coupled with a really good set of diagnostic tests uh, most of which can be done within the blood uh can get you partly there um this might be more nuanced than i can get into without a whiteboard even though i realize i have one behind me i'm not going to jump on it I try to explain to patients that when it comes to the main three diseases, so the atherosclerotic diseases, the neoplasms, and the neurodegenerative diseases, depending on your age, what we learn from family history and what the blood test shows, we can get somewhere between, I think, 70 to 90% of our predictive insights from, uh, on cardiovascular disease from blood, probably only about 30 to 40% from cancer and probably about 60 to 70% on neurodegenerative disease, but specifically dementia. Um, now, the earlier you start in life, I think the better you can handicap those risks. Uh, the later you get, I think the more you have to look at other means of testing to stratify risk. So for I'll give you one very simple example. Is there a role for coronary calcium scoring and CT angiograms and things like that? Sure, there's a role for them, but the younger you are, the less valuable those tools become for predicting risk and the more value you can get by understanding the lipoproteins, the inflammation, the endothelial health. 
we have a, a long body of, of science, a lot of history saying you know, cholesterol is, is really important. And you've shifted the way you talk about that from not just general cholesterol, but you talk about oxidized cholesterol and specific lipoproteins. Thank you for that, by the way. Because, you know, HDL does something different than other ones, just like, um, you know, just like people say, you know, protein is good or bad for you. It's like, well, spider venom and nerve gas, both of which are proteins, neither one of those is good for you. Like different proteins might do different things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, like, we, there's a nuance to this. And, and so thank you for helping on that yeah. one. If someone has unfavorable, uh, we'll, we'll say lipoproteins, but they have no markers of inflammation, what, and which one is more important? I mean, are, are you concerned as a doctor if someone's like, well, I have zero LPPLA2, that enzyme that's released when your your arteries or uh, arteries are being damaged, and I have no inflammation to speak of in my body, but my cholesterol is dysregulated. Do you care? I mean, I think that's a really difficult question, and I don't think it's one we know the answer to. The first thing I do want to clarify is that I want to make sure patients understand, like, I don't like the word cholesterol just willy-nilly because it has so much. So, so I, I try right. to get very specific on that. So when I'm evaluating a patient for risk, I am paying attention to four lipoproteins in the following order. I need to know their LP little a. Yay. Uh, and ideally, I want to know that through NMR. In other words, I don't want to know the mass of LPA, and I don't want to know the cholesterol content of LPA. I want to know the number in nanomole per liter of LPA particles. So that's the first thing. So we know that about 8% of the population have that genetically inherited, and it's elevated. In fact, uh, Anahat O'Connor did a really nice piece in the New York Times um, probably about two or three months ago on this silent killer, which unfortunately by most physicians is just completely unacknowledged. And it's a tragedy because it is a greater cause of familial heart disease than any other genetic mutation we're aware of. Second thing I want to know is what is their LDL particle number? I don't care about their LDL cholesterol. I'm honestly more interested in their eye color than their LDL cholesterol. <laughs> if their LDL cholesterol agrees with their LDL particle, then that's fine. But if it doesn't, I don't care. It is unambiguously clear in looking at the Mesa population and the Framingham population that when there is discordance between LDLP and LDLC, LDLP wins every time. So I want another LDLP. I want another small LDLP. Now, this is still an area that I think is a little bit gray in this space. Um, I think you, you still have two camps, sort of the, you know, the camp that says particle for particle size doesn't matter. And then the camp that says, no, actually a small particle is an independent predictor of risk and therefore has atherosclerotic properties that are unique to it. We, since we can't really target small particles directly, it might be a bit of a moot point other than to help risk stratify. The fourth thing I care about then is the VLDL remnant, and the best way we can estimate that is to look at the VLDL cholesterol, and the best way we can estimate that is to take the non-HDL cholesterol, subtract from it the LDL cholesterol. So I guess I'll take back what I said a moment ago. There is one time I care about the LDL cholesterol, which is to calculate the VLDL cholesterol, which then serves as a proxy for VLDL remnants. Again, a VLDL remnant is problematic if you have enough of them because it is an atherosclerotic particle. It is an ApoB100 bearing particle. So now let's reframe the question. If a patient shows up and they have some of those or all of those elevated, so, so again, notice I don't care what their total right. cholesterol is or LDL cholesterol. I don't care if their HDL cholesterol is low either, by the way, because everybody gets phosphorylated over low HDL cholesterol, but we are way too early in the infancy of lipoproteins to to actually even pretend we know what that means. In fact, you could make an argument that a low HDL cholesterol serves to have a more functional HDL particle. 
And we certainly know the opposite is true, that the more you fill an HDL with cholesterol, i.e. the higher the HDLC gets, the less functional they can be. And we've seen three clinical trials of CTEP inhibitors that have all raised HDL cholesterol and two of the three increased mortality. Right. The third was actually just pulled off the market because it had no effect. So HDL biology is actually, I think, way more complicated than LDL biology. So if you have somebody who's elevated in all of those risks, and now they say, well, but, but Peter, my LPPLA2, as you pointed out, is normal. My CRP is normal. My fibrinogen is normal. My homocysteine is normal. My OxLDL is normal. What do you want? You know, do we need to do anything? I think the question is, do you feel lucky? Because, you know, you need three things to be not firing on all cylinders to get disease. And so you've, we've ruled out effectively, in this case, the inflammation that we can measure seems okay. But of course, we have far more advanced inflammatory tests that I'll typically look to if I want to get a better understanding of that. None of those things give me a sense of how the endothelium is functioning. And, and, and of, all the, of the main drivers of atherosclerosis, I think uh, endothelial function is the hardest one to assess in the blood. So we do look at things like asymmetric and symmetric dimethylarginine. Uh, insulin itself probably speaks to endothelial health, and certainly homocysteine does. But that's relatively crude compared to the precision with which we can look at things like lipoproteins. So I would say, look, most risk models that would you know, evaluate a patient are looking at 10 years of risk. Now, 10 years of risk doesn't really mean that much to someone like you who's 45 who wants to be 180. If you're yeah. 45 and you want to be 180, the fact that your 10-year risk is low shouldn't tell me to back off. So my, my view on this is actually quite a long view, which is that we have to be able to address these things through the lens of what's the 60-year risk or longer for what we're talking about. And in that sense, I think it's actually quite unambiguous that lower LDLP and frankly, even LDLC always corresponds to less heart disease. Now, I know what some people are going to say, you know, you can always find an exception to, you know, these things, but the body of work through the Mendelian randomizations and all of the naturally occurring experiments, including the PCSK9 gain and loss of function people, make this pretty clear. In fact, so much so that um, the European Society of Cardiology actually recently published at the end of last year a very strong statement saying, look, it is, it is becoming impossible to ignore the role of ApoB and atherosclerosis mm -hmm. as a causative agent. So maybe the way to frame this question, and I apologize it's taken so long to get to it, but this is a nuanced point, is if someone's sitting there with perfect inflammation and elevated lipoproteins and saying, do I need to do anything? The question is, do you want to be even better? So you might be in good shape. You know, you might, you might actually still do okay, but do you want to do better than okay? Because if having lower lipoproteins, you're going to do better than okay. And the question is, how do you achieve that without causing another problem? So this is where yeah. I tend to then deviate from the kind of mainstream cardiology approach and where I probably have just as many arguments on the other side, which is, I think from a, from a cardiac standpoint, you can't go too low on LDL. Interesting. The problem is you can go too low on LDL from right. the standpoint of other diseases. Like cancer? <laughs> well, I, th I think actually more so of neurodegenerative disease is my biggest okay. concern. So I, yeah. I tend to get very concerned when a patient has a complete suppression of cholesterol synthesis, uh, and their risk of Alzheimer's disease, either through genetics or uh, non-genetic sources, is deemed anything high. So I actually treat every patient as though they're modest risk for Alzheimer's disease. And I sort of never want to see their cholesterol synthesis suppressed below a certain 
level, which we can measure and that has been documented through some pretty interesting research to significantly increase the risk of, of neurodegeneration. So you, that's the, that gets back to your point about what's the art. Well, the art is how do you, how do you finesse two different fields of literature that aren't actually looking at the same problem necessarily uh, uh, directly, but indirectly they are. And then your job is to sort of understand, well, you know, if it's happening this way over here and it's happening this way over here, how do we thread a needle to give us the best of both worlds? During my uh, years of biohacking and experimenting, I got my cholesterol, my total cholesterol down to 136 uh, when I was a, a raw vegan uh, eating huge buckets of, of food every day to try and have enough food. Uh, didn't, uh, didn't do very well on that over, over the course of time. Uh, and I, I definitely experienced way more brain fog and like the neurological things that, that can happen when, when your cholesterol is too low. And uh, I, I don't know that from that long ago, this was a good 15 years ago. I, I don't know that I have, I don't know that we could get some of these uh, markers that we can get today. I mean, is, is there a level where if someone came in and their cholesterol is you know, that low or in, at 100 where you sort of scratch your head and go, this is not a good thing? Or even then you want to see the particles? Yeah. Again, I never really concerned myself with the cholesterol. What I'm looking at when I'm looking at the particles that I talked about is I want to understand four things, three of which we can measure, one of which we still can't measure, but we can infer it by the other three. So the first is I need to understand what their volume of triglycerides are. So lipoproteins are there to traffic cholesterol, but they also traffic triglycerides. And so you want your serum triglycerides as low as possible. And the more of those guys you have floating around, uh, the more you're wasting precious space on your lipoproteins to, to, you know, to make use of the cholesterol space. The second thing I want to understand is how much cholesterol do they make? So every cell in the body makes cholesterol. In fact, every cell in the body makes almost enough cholesterol to meet its own needs. But of course, that's not always the case. So for example, if you are sick, the adrenal glands are probably going to need more cholesterol than they can make. And they're going to have to beg, borrow, and steal from someone else, which is why we have these lipoproteins to traffic cholesterol around the body. We can measure that. We can measure how much cholesterol the body makes. The next thing I want to understand is how does your body recirculate cholesterol? So all that cholesterol is getting made, it's getting trafficked. It ends up back at the liver and the LDL particle gets brought in to the liver through the LDL receptor. And the process then results in the cholesterol being put into bile and then partially being reabsorbed in the gut. And again, we can measure that. So now we get a sense of what that dynamic looks like and how that's being circulated. Finally, the thing we can't measure directly is how well does the liver clear the lipoprotein out of circulation? So when I'm trying to evaluate if a patient's cholesterol or particles are too low, I have to do it in the context of all of those things. But as a general rule, no, I don't find myself being concerned with low cholesterol unless the synthesis per se is being low and I see an obvious endocrine problem along the way. So from a symptom standpoint, you know, and I don't think I've actually, I'm trying to think, I might've seen this once where when you're working up hypogonadism, it looks like the problem is just insufficient cholesterol. But, but I, I, I gotta be honest with you, that could also be true, true and unrelated. And I'm not sure that, yeah, I'm just not sure that that's even causally related because the challenge with looking in the bloodstream is you're not getting tissue specific information. Right. So 
you'd have to believe that the gonads aren't smart enough to make enough cholesterol when they need it. So, so I really think that the hypogonadism diagnosis in, in a patient like that is probably more due to something else, you know, deficient pituitary signaling and or Leydig cell dysfunction more than it is, God, everything's on firing on all cylinders, Dave. We just don't have enough cholesterol. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. I just, I don't think that's the case. By the way, I was a vegan 15 years ago as well. So when I was, when I was 30. How'd that work for you? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, so I don't, I, I, I don't want to take too much credit for my veganism. I, I just did it for six months as an experiment. Uh, but I remember distinctly when I did it. So first of all, I enjoyed it tremendously. I think a lot of people, oh, yeah, so I think I. a lot of people who assume that, you know, I'm the guy that spent all this time in ketosis, I'd be like the anti-vegan. But the reality is I just, I love vegetables beyond words. And I wasn't the healthiest vegan. I must admit, there was a lot of vegetarian subway you know, stuff okay. and, and stuff. So it wasn't, I, never did I wasn't that. like the, but I was in my residency at the time. So it's like, oh, I was, okay, on, I was on a pretty shoestring budget when I was doing this. I'll tell you a couple things that observed. So the first thing is I gained a little bit of weight doing it. That was a little bit frustrating because this was kind of in a time when I was trying to understand like why I couldn't lose weight. The second thing that I found really interesting, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this uh, as can others is I was amazed how when I went back to eating meat, how my appetite for it had decreased. And so I, I had yeah. agreed a priori I was going to do this for six months. And I was like counting down the days until I could go have that steak on the first day of the next month. And I remember going to a steakhouse and not being able to eat the steak. And I remember yeah. thinking, that is weird, man. Like, doesn't that speak to how malleable and adaptive we are to our environments? And obviously in time, I was able to, you know, learn to eat a steak again, but it, it gave me a greater insight and empathy into patients who we ask to make significant changes in how they eat. It, it does take time no matter when you make a change. Although I, I find once people get some ketones flowing, their, their cravings drop <laughs> very substantially. So they're, they're able to say no to sugar more easily and, and things like that. But I, I remember I said, I'll, I'll do this forever. And I, I would eat gravel every day if I thought it was going to make me live longer. And I felt good when I did it. And it was when I started to get even worse brain fog, not better. And then I, I cracked a tooth with it should had no business cracking. Mm. And I was, I mean, I was a very conscientious vegan. I, I prepared everything, went to the farmer's market, fresh vegetables. I, I, I did everything you could do uh, and just found that, all right, like at a, a certain point, I realized this just isn't, this isn't working. Uh, same as some of the other things I, I tried to do to lose weight over the years, although I did lose weight as a as a vegan. Uh, it just, uh, I didn't lose all the weight I wanted to lose, and a lot of it was muscle mass, uh, not necessarily fat mass. So it was an interesting experiment, but it just, it makes me think, what did my cholesterol do? But but you talked about uh, something that that I think listeners would care about. You talked about this cholesterol recirculation, and some percentage of us, uh, roughly maybe 28%, have an HLA-DR uh, or one of several different HLA-DR genetic polymorphisms where, and for if you're listening to this, that basically means you have some different genes, <laughs> for lack of, a, of an easier way to say that, uh, that uh, cause us to more effectively recirculate our bile and thus our cholesterol. And those are the 28% of people that are more susceptible to uh, lipophoric toxins. These are basically toxins that dissolve into fatty stuff in the body and get recirculated in the nervous system that are uh, tied in some studies to Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, a bunch of other things. And things like Lyme disease make lipophoric toxins. Things like toxic mold make lipophoric toxins. And 
I, I think that there's there's some very interesting anti-aging things like that. Like that, if you're one of those people who has that uh, that difference genetically, you're more likely to survive in some environments, you know, throughout history. Uh, for instance, times of famine, because you're better at recirculating these precious molecules. Uh, but you're less likely to survive if you have things that dissolve into your fat that keep getting recirculated versus excreted and then remanufactured fresh. Do you look at that as a part of your anti-aging perspective? Um, I look at something a little bit different along that same spectrum, which is I'm interested in a different polymorphism, which is around something called the ATP binding cassette, G5G8. So this is the specific... So, so when you have that biliary cholesterol coming down your intestine, a transporter called the Neiman-Pick C1-like-1 transporter brings any non-esterified sterol into the enterocyte. So esterified is just the chemical for the listener, uh, it's just a chemical structure that has two molecules that are joined by a covalent bond around an oxygen uh, atom. But if you don't have something that's esterified, meaning it's less bulky, it can be brought in that transporter. And then you have a whole set of sensing molecules inside the cell that says, hey, do you have too much of this stuff in you? And if so, we need to get it out. So we're going to kick it out through that ATP binding cassette. Now, here's where kind of you can get into trouble. The last numbers I'd seen were somewhere between about 8 to 12% of the population have defective or suboptimally working ATP binding cassettes. These are people that have a much harder time getting phytosterols out of their system. So sterols can, like cholesterol is just the sterol from an animal. Uh, phytosterol is the sterol or cholesterol equivalent from a plant. Now, it's been largely known that if you take high doses of phytosterols, you can actually lower your cholesterol. Mm -hmm. uh, and this explains the mechanism why. You basically overcrowd the system, the Neiman-Pixie-1-like-1 transporter, and all of a sudden the body just can't absorb as much cholesterol. So you, you look at your cholesterol numbers and you say, oh, yay, this is great news. The problem is phytosterols turn out to be more atherogenic than cholesterol. So... I care deeply about a patient's phytosterols level, uh, their, their level of phytosterols because of their atherosclerotic properties. And as a general rule, I don't advocate using phytosterols as a tool to lower cholesterol. In other words, I'm not saying don't go out and eat as much plant matter as you want. I think you can't overdo it just eating, but certainly taking these exogenous phytosterols is problematic. Now, to the point you're making, I think we see that example lots of places in biology. I mean, that again speaks to this idea of Biology is a bitch. I mean, it's just, there's just no way two ways about it, right? Like, so look at the APOE gene, right? So we used to all be APOE4s up until about 200,000 years ago. It meant we were all, quote unquote, high risk for Alzheimer's disease up until 200,000 years ago. Well, what was the advantage of an APOE4 gene when compared to the APO3, which showed up 200,000 years ago, or even the APO2, which showed up 50,000 years ago? It turned out it offered you enormous protection against parasitic infections. So if you didn't want to get parasite infections, especially those that got to the brain, having an APOE4 gene would be a better thing. But of course, today we know that the APOE4 is not an advantage gene, but a disadvantage gene, at least with respect to Alzheimer's disease and atherosclerosis. So the example you referred to, I'm actually not familiar with that example, but certainly by plausibility, it, it would certainly make sense that different polymorphisms are going to predispose people to different scenarios or more specifically allow them to thrive in one environment um, or offer protection and, and yet it, uh, come with a disadvantage or a drawback in another environment. 
And these are the the nuances where when we talk about living to 180 or or longer, even like I said, you know, biology is a bitch, <laughs> but your individual biology is even worse uh, because you've got to be able to map all this stuff out, at least enough of it to move the needle, right? And then make the appropriate changes. And uh, I'm seeing a lot more things going on around gut bacteria. You know, you have different gut bacteria, so you change the gut bacteria, then they they change what's happening inside your biology. And we're just now getting to the point we have a good data set there. We can start applying that data set to looking at, at that as an independent risk profile or risk factor in your profile. And it seems like we're only going to be getting more and more and more data, which makes teasing out what matters for you versus the guy sitting next to you maybe more difficult, but also more accurate. Do you believe that our ability uh, to make sense of the data will grow at the same speed that the amount of data that we're getting is growing? Or are we just dealing with way too much data? No, absolutely not. not. Not a chance in hell. The availability of data is going to outpace our ability to understand what to do with it at a log order. Uh, And in fact, as time goes on, I think the signal-to-noise ratio is going down, not up. So I think that is a problem. And I also think the problem is, among other things, and I'm as guilty of this as as anyone, I think we just generally are more confident than we should be. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, I sometimes stop and say, wait a minute, Peter, why, like, why are you so confident in what you're saying? You know, I mean, like, is that reasonable? And then, of course, I get all self-doubting and self-loathing and think, well, you know, I don't know anything. And every time I think I know something, I, I learn something new that tells me I didn't know what I thought I knew. And so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm troubled in some sense by my inability to make sense of all the data out there. I mean, you brought up gut biome. There's an example of something where I, I just think it's a complete shit show, no pun intended, <laughs> of you know, just completely useless, meaningless data that, you know, just really strikes me as a bit of a drunk in the streetlight problem, which is, you know, you see the drunk guy standing below the streetlight and you say, hey, dude, what are you doing looking under the streetlight? He says, I'm looking for my keys. You say, is that where you last left them? No, but this is where the light is. <laughs> and so we've, you know, every time our practice, our analysts take a hard and fast look at the gut biome stuff, we come up empty handed, you know, which is one, These data do not provide us with actionable insights that seem to materially move the needle. Two, it is not clear if these findings are associative or causative to the things we care about. So I'm not saying that those things won't turn out to be true, but every time over the past seven years we've looked into it and and looked into it at a level of excruciating detail that I think few people um, could appreciate, including very recently, we just went through this exercise with yet another sequencing company. I mean, gosh, I just got the final report on that from my team a week ago. Um, and it was, again, another disappointment. So we want to believe that this stuff can help us because we're looking for any edge we can get. If we were going to you know, use the example of being hedge fund managers, I mean, we're looking for any legal edge that can create the maximum alpha at the lowest risk. That's effectively the model of longevity. So no stones should be left unturned, but oh my God, half the stones you turn over, you don't know what to do with what's under them. <laughs> uh, so the the amount of data is, is definitely changing. And I, I, I'm reminded at one time when I was doing the research on, on the Bulletproof diet, uh, not just the, you know, the PubMed research, but also just the, the experimentation, like, well, the, this, the study says this ought to kind of work. Let's just try this for a while and see what happens. And I got it dialed in where I could be at a, a level of leanness and energy that I'd never had in my life. And I could keep it. And I, I kept it for 
a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, over the course of about six to eight weeks, I gained 20 pounds. Wow. And I'm like, this is this is not okay. And, and like all the tools that I use just didn't work. Right. And, and like at that point, I'm like, I've got this. Like I, I own my biology, at least at that level, where like I, this is something I can dial up and down. And I, I was really frustrated. So I, you know, what could this be? And a bunch of lab tests. And it turns out I had high levels of blastocystis. You know, it's a, a stuff that grows in your gut that shouldn't grow there that is correlated pretty heavily with autoimmune conditions uh, and new food allergies, which I also achieved at the time. And this is after coming off. Um, a few months of like, a, we'll call it extreme keto, where I, I probably wasn't feeding much at all to my gut bacteria that they liked. It was you know fat and protein and very few anything else. When I treated the blasto, I lost the weight in another like three weeks. Like it just fell off, right? And I'm pretty darn... And you treated it by doing uh, what? I took whatever antibiotic kills blasto. Actually, it might've been metronidazole. I, I don't actually remember what I took. Um, this was a, a while ago. But but did you also correct the dietary imbalance that led? I to tried it? correcting the dietary imbalance before I did that, uh, so I, I played around with the diet. All right, I'll, I'll go off the extreme keto thing like that. But like no, nothing moved the needle. Not, none of the dietary changes that should have you know whether dialing carbs up or or down. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was pretty obvious that when I when I I took the stuff to kill it, I, I felt better, uh, and then uh, and, and the weight just came off very dramatically. And you look at like the studies on something like that, like knowing you've got that going on, or more recently, I had a, uh, apparently Giardia and an amoeba that uh, eats your brain, uh, if it gets into your brain anyway. I'm forgetting its name. Uh, it was a histolytica. Don't say e-histolytica. It, it was. Okay. Uh, Why? Well, I, 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 do, do tell me if, if uh, I, it, especially if you're a skeptical, I want to hear this. I'll tell you, I had four months of disaster pants, like 20 times a day. You're like, okay, <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing will stop this. And I also, I, as soon as I got this, I got it from salad at a restaurant, you know? Well, well, so, so yeah. I will say this, yeah. like, uh, I don't, you don't need a gut sequence or no. you don't need to sequence your gut biome to know those things. So those are well understood parasites. I think Giardia is certainly, I mean, I, my guess, Dave, yeah. not trying to play doctor on a podcast is all of your difficulties were due to the Giardia, not the e-histolytica. E-histolytica is probably an innocent bystander in that equation. But regardless, even if we would buy the argument that e-histolytica is the problem, we don't need to sequence no, the no multi-trillion dollars of bacteria. I mean, this is the kind of this is just basic parasitology. It, although I can tell you, so, so three different labs miss these things. Like, what, and, oh, oh no, I'm not. Okay. Say, I'm not saying it's trivial, <laughs> but I'm just saying like. You know, that is basic parasitology yeah. and that's, you know, got it. And, and my guess is you were someplace where you drank water that, that, that is where you got that from. Yeah, it usually shows up from sort of a contaminated water source. So a lot of people get it hiking or camping or being in some unusual place. This was probably a, a restaurant in Phoenix, as, as far as we can tell. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, <laughs> I mean, Phoenix is a, a rough and wild place. And, and yeah. it's uh, one, one practitioner said, oh, you, it looks like you've had this Giardia in your system for a while. Uh, but whatever was going on there, uh, four months of, of, you know, trying different, different drugs and different natural techniques and everything that I knew, nothing touched it. And it was, it's finally an 80 year old guy, uh, in New York who's written six textbooks on tropical, uh, parasites. Well, the, the reason I'm saying this is that there's a lot going on in the gut. Uh, that sure was a long time to say that, but <laughs> there's, yeah. no, no, no. And I don't disagree. I think what I was just, the point I was making is I'm not, I'm not disputing the importance of the gut. I'm not disputing that. There are many times when a pathology can be found in the gut, treated directly, and lead to an improvement. There you go. I think, yeah, I think I think what I'm what I'm generally going to reserve my optimism around is that, and I won't name names of companies. I was just about to use a company's name as a verb to blank blank your 
gut biome sequence uh, is the panacea to health. I mean, I'm just I'm just waiting on the evidence that demonstrates that that okay. that's going to provide more actionable insight than the other stuff. And my hope is that you know, first of all, right now the sequencing is still prohibitively slow on yep. this stuff. So every time we've gone to sequence it's really hard to make changes when you don't have somewhat real-time feedback. So if you come to me and say, Peter, I'm feeling like, you know, really horrible and blah, 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 blah. And we do a sequence and I have to wait 12 weeks <laughs> to get the results back. It's going to be really hard to make a decision and, and tie it back to where you were. So, you know, they have to get faster, they have to get better. And those are, those are engineering problems. I mean, that's, that's, that basically just requires capital and engineering. Those are solvable problems. Um, you know, the most thoughtful person to me on this topic is a guy named Larry Smarr. And I don't know if your readers are familiar with, with Larry, but I love Larry. I've actually held his 3d printed colon. In fact, I took a pin, a picture of his own colon. <laughs> I took a picture of it on a sushi plate, like with all the trimmings and I put it on whatever Twitter. And, and I said, can anyone tell me what kind of sushi this is? Um, cause it looks like a piece of sushi, but it's actually his colon. So this is a UC San Diego scientist. He, he's a complete yeah, badass. Yeah. Yeah, so so Larry Larry's a close friend, and, and actually we're having we're having dinner uh, probably in, in about three weeks, um, and so the question is, can you take the types of insights? Not you, but can one take the types of insights that Larry has generated through just raw computing power and you know sheer brute force, and 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 how long will it be before we can take that? to, you know, the masses. And, and as you probably know, Larry's whole story, I mean, you know, Larry's basically the guy that single-handedly figured out his own GI pathology just through sequencing and understanding how colitis could be related to these patterns. So yeah, there's absolutely something there. You just think um, we aren't quite, we aren't there yet just, from a technology. I just don't think we're okay. ready for prime time yet, which, which means, you know, let's, let's keep rooting for it. I, I actually share your perspective in, in that we, there's so much we don't know. And, and when I get a full workup, like, like 90% of the things that, that they find, we don't know what that means yet. <laughs> so like, well, how actionable is that? I have some cool bacteria from a sea squirt growing in, in my gut uh, that are apparently good for me, but like, I'm not sure what to do with that yet, but I know we're going to get right. there and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about some of the innovations there. Well, well, so let's talk for a minute about not just Alzheimer's, but executive function, processing speed, short-term memory, uh, things like that. Like these are things that, that you can actually look at as people age and they go down relatively reliably. Like your working memory doesn't work as well. What are the things you're doing for yourself or for patients to protect executive function? Well, I mean, I, I think the reality of it is I don't have a great sense of how one augments those things in healthy individuals. We certainly have a sense based on some work we've done in collaboration on how you would go about addressing those in people who are imminently facing decline. So what we do then is by extension, we, we make a logical posit, which may or may not be true, which is whatever things that are necessary to delay cognitive impairment in people who are susceptible should also provide a benefit to those who are perfectly functional. Now, that's those aren't logically equivalent and therefore you know, we have to acknowledge that that could be incorrect. It could be that whatever steps are necessary to take someone who's in early cognitive impairment and reverse it are not the same things that would take someone like you, who's presumably got no impairment going on and saying, okay, how can we boost your performance by 20%? But nevertheless, um, I think there are a number of factors that have to be considered. So the one you can't change is genetic. So there are a handful of genes that are going to certainly predispose people to cognitive decline, APOE, 
being by far the most common if you're an E4 versus an E3 or an E2. But there are other SNPs as well. So TOM40, uh, that's T-O, that's double M40, is a SNP that's actually very close to the APOE gene, uh, may or may not be an independent predictor outside of it, TGF, and a few others. Now, you, you got those, you got those, we can't change them. But when you start to look at- can't change them yet. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I don't hold out a lot of hope that we're going to be okay. making germline changes yet. Yeah. For any time soon in terms of, in terms of gene therapy, but even over a fi- even over a 50 year timeline, you don't think that's possible? Serious question. No, I think that's a fair question. Um, I don't know, Dave. I mean, I think that's, that's, I don't either. I yeah, just hope it I, is. <laughs> sure. I, I hope it is too. Um, but let's look at the things that we can actually okay. impact today. It's the first thing is going to be metabolism. Second thing is going to be vascular health. The third thing is going to be exposure to toxins. I think those are your big three. And Mm so our way of thinking around brain health is identifying your risks according to the four metrics, genes, vascular health, metabolic health, and toxins, understanding what we can and can't measure. So we have a great ability to measure your genetic susceptibility to AD. That's one time where the genes actually, the genetic testing is actually helpful. We have a really good sense of how to measure your vascular risk factor. We have a really good sense of measuring how your metabolic stuff. We don't have great tools for measuring toxins. So it's very indirect. So I can measure all these things in your blood, but only in our most high, high, high risk patients are we doing lumbar punctures to look at CSF level. So cerebrospinal fluid, of course, which you can achieve, you know, you can, you can capture through a lumbar puncture. We'll only look at that in the most high risk patients, but, but certainly I would not consider that ready for prime time. So what do you want to do to achieve maximum brain health? You know, at the risk of sounding a bit trite, it's anything that you do that maximizes insulin sensitivity and reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease is almost assuredly also reducing your risk of neurodegenerative disease. Our view internally is that Alzheimer's disease is actually several diseases Mm -hmm. and the inability to have stratified them into different diseases is probably partially what explains the epic failures in pharmacotherapy, which is when you try to treat all diseases at once with one drug, you're very likely to see a strong enough signal in the subset that's most susceptible. So when you look at that group of Alzheimer's patients whose disease seems to be most manifested by a metabolic phenotype, so these would be patients who, if you give them intranasal insulin, they get better transiently. Yep. So that, but that doesn't happen with all patients. So what's happening in those patients? Well, in those patients, intranasal insulin is probably offsetting some of the insulin resistance at pyruvate dehydrogenase that's preventing pyruvate from getting into the mitochondria of the neuron to generate the real lion's share of ATP. Just for people listening, intranasal insulin is a relatively recent thing. You can literally take the insulin you would inject, put it in a nasal spray and take a couple puffs in each uh, in each nostril. And man, if, if I was taking medical school exams, uh, which I never have, uh, but I would probably be doing that before I walked in to take the test because I, <laughs> I noticed a massive boost in cognitive function when I do that. Mm-hmm. And my insulin sensitivity is actually perfect on the, at least the last time I measured it. Um, but it, it goes into the brain. You're like, dang, what just happened? My visual acuity improves. Like, like it's, it's noticeable. How long did the effect last? Oh, it's good for an hour or two. I, I don't know. It, it, it's not a super long effect for me. Interesting. I've never tried intranasal insulin. I'll uh, I'll have to try it. it. It's worth a shot. Get, get it? <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to say that. But it's it's one of those like fringe area cognitive enhancement short term strategies for when like if if you're going to write something or you want to be on stage and you you want to pull out all the stops, 
take a one milligram of nicotine, a little bit of intranasal insulin and watch what your brain can do. You wouldn't even believe it. Like, like it, it's those sorts of things. But if you do it all the time, intranasal insulin is probably going to increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Well, it's interesting. I'd have to give it some thought. I haven't really thought about it through that lens. Um, if constitutive use would, uh, um, if you believe Dale Bresden's work, it probably would, uh, that, that scared me. I don't, I, by the way, for people listening, who are going to go out and try this. You should try it if it's not going to be risky for your own biology because it's really interesting. But what, should you do it every single day? I would say there's no evidence that says it's not harmful. <laughs> so, Well, I mean, in fact, the null hypothesis should be it is harmful yeah, exactly. given that it's completely unnatural. Um, but interesting. It'd be interesting to, to see if there's a benefit. My guess is the more insulin resistant somebody is centrally, the more benefit they would, they would experience from this. That's generally the case with these things. But um, – yeah. Anyway, that's that's interesting. Uh, not to take you off your track. I just realized a lot of people might not know what intranasal insulin was because it's not well known outside of weird biohacker circles or uh, you know some people looking at diabetes and things. Uh, so I, yeah, yeah. I totally took you off your uh, off your path. What you were saying there around. I think I was. I think okay. I was pretty much done. Which was basically you want to um, you want to do all things that reduce cognitive decline and those things those things probably then parse out into these things now. What I don't think is entirely clear, although I think there are smarter people than me who are working specifically on this problem, is are there specific games that we can play that hone our skills around these things? So like if I took a Raven test every day, does that make my executive function higher? Probably not, although I do find the Raven test to be incredibly fun. Being one of the Raven test being sort of one of the one of the tests that we use to ex, to assess executive function, you probably just get better at taking the Raven test, like just like IQ tests, right? It, it, exactly. I mean, I th- and I think that's the point here. So we did an internal experiment. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to discuss this. Publicly that means you should definitely <laughs> using the null hypothesis. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I just loosely, we did a very informal experiment around a bunch of neurocognitive tests, which is why I wanted to understand how much could you offset a known driver of decline by just having more experience with the game. So the experiment was basically getting a whole bunch of the analysts together to take the test and then take a shot of alcohol and then take the test again and then take a shot of alcohol and then take the test again. So what you were basically doing was getting drunk while you were taking a test and looking to see if performance would go down. And it turned out performance stayed completely flat during the period of debauchery, which suggested to us that the learning effect was equally offsetting to the cognitive impairment that was coming through the alcohol. And this went on for like eight rounds of shots. Like this was wow. like eight rounds, eight hours or some, something like that. It was a non-trivial amount of impairment. And again, we did, we were looking at this internally because this was before we discovered um, our, we have a great collaborator now at, um, his name is Richard Isaacson. He's a neurologist at Cornell and his, he and his team have the largest Alzheimer's prevention clinic in the United States. And so what and I had known Richard before this, but we didn't decide to start collaborating until after this because what I came away realizing was off-the-shelf cognitive testing was pretty useless. And you really needed clinical grade, like NIH toolkit powered cognitive testing to really measure meaningful changes in cognition. And we internally at our practice just didn't have the expertise to be able to administer those tests. Whereas in Richard's clinic, because that's all they do day in and day out is high risk 
you know, treat patients who are not yet having dementia, but who are high risk. It was the perfect sweet spot. Well, you said something earlier. Uh, you said that assuming everyone has, uh, or assuming a person has a, a normal or healthy cognitive function, that there probably isn't much we can do. My experience working with, with people and just with myself is that very few people have uh, well-functioning or, or, or perfectly functioning cognitive function at any take at any place in time. Sure. Uh, and, and that's because we're all exposed to some toxins. Our mitochondria are a little happy. We didn't sleep well last night. You know, we had a drink uh, of some kind of inflammatory thing. So, so there's, there's, I think for 99% of the population, there's low-hanging cognitive enhancement fruit that comes from just giving you access to all that's already there. And then there's another set of training exercises, uh, some of them neurofeedback-based, where there's like like sh- IQ improvements shown in multiple studies. There's dual in-back training. I write about some of the stuff in my new book that's coming out in December. Like, like, okay, these are things that are shown in multiple studies to have the potential to raise IQ. But even then, we don't know, are these in people who maybe that was their natural IQ and we just, they're tapping into what was there. They're recouping. Yeah, it, yeah. or are we taking someone and saying, well, now you have more fluid intelligence uh, and, and it looks like fluid intelligence is trainable. It's just really unpleasant to train it, which is why no one does it. We are looking into this, I mean, a lot. Um, so, so the way I would, the way I would describe this is what's the basic blocking and tackling everyone should be doing to maximize their cognition. And it basically comes down to the same very unsexy cast of characters, which is what you do with respect to your nutrition matters. <laughs> so the less you can create glucose fluctuations, yeah. The less you can create insulin surges, the more steady the influx of energy to your brain. Yes. So even, even those people who are on a ketogenic diet, there is no denying that even under George Cahill's most extreme example of starvation, these were 40-day yeah. starved subjects, they were still getting at least 40% of their brain's energy was coming from glucose through the gluconeogenic turnover. So even when, and that's starving ketosis with ketones of seven to eight millimolar. So the average person walking around in nutritional ketosis is still probably relying on 60-70% of their brain energy from glucose. So glucose always matters. Glucose homeostasis always matters. Um, sleep. Yeah. I mean, not to harp on it because it's become so obvious now that most people don't even want to hear about it anymore. But, you know, you and I were bullshitting about the aura right. ring before we went on the podcast. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of it. You're a huge fan of it. There's a reason right. for it, right? It's like, it's a, it's a, it's the most accurate tool out there to measure one of the most important things that we do. And the difference in my cognitive performance when I wake up and my aura score was 85% versus 65%, I mean, it's night and freaking yep. day. Um, and, and I'm even at the point where like I could not look at my score first thing in the morning and wait and see how I feel for a couple hours and almost kind of predict my readiness score and my sleep score. It's just a function of how I feel. You know, sleep, exercise. Then we talk about management of distress. Well, I think that the biggest epidemic that certainly is facing many of us, including many of my patients, is just distraction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are so distracted. I, I, I get a lot of patients that complain to me that they think they're in early stages of dementia. You know, they're 45 yeah. years old and they're worried that they're, you know, they're like, you know, CEO of a company was telling me, like, I can't remember the names of my employees anymore. And I said, well, okay, I, it's possible it could be early onset dementia, but a far more likely scenario is you are getting 375 emails a day that require your attention mm-hmm. and you're constantly being tugged into this meeting versus that meeting versus this meeting. And you're simply prioritizing, like, do I really need to remember the name of every person who works in this company or can I just, you know, limit it to the 12 people who report directly to me? So I think that um, we are all highly distracted and that 
tends to produce a state that is suboptimal with respect to these metrics, but executive function, uh, processing speed, and short-term memory in particular. Uh, very, very well put. Now, I've noticed, uh, you, you said something really good about controlling blood sugar in, in the brain, and, and I've noticed that my my cognitive function is much better when I have ketones and some glucose present, uh, which is one of the reasons I think Bulletproof Coffee is, is taken off, is it gives you background ketones even if you had some carbs the night before. And I've found that that I've one of my companies is a neuroscience clinic that does cognitive enhancement stuff, custom hardware, software, 24 channel, QEG, a bunch of stuff like that in Seattle. And it's a five day intensive program where we have people for 10 hours a day doing neurofeedback and personal development kind of stuff. But if I give them a brain octane, so they get exogenous ketones from that, uh, just a baseline low level stuff, and they're eating a clean diet, which is good. We have a chef on site, so I can enforce that. <laughs> they can do two and a half times more of this like intensive meditation sort of stuff with with electrodes before they just hit the wall where it's like a willpower wall. We're like, I just have no, there's nothing left in my brain. Like, like, like I've, I've hit my, uh, it's like, like in a marathon. Like I'm just, I, I can't run another step. You can do that with meditation, right. but we can push that wall out about two and a half times with some ketones. But if they're on a zero carb diet, unless they're highly adapted, they can't do it either. So it's like, if they're all sugar, it doesn't work. If they're all carbs, it doesn't work. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, not just from a willpower cognitive enhancement thing, but on this unnatural state of having uh, some glucose, but not high glucose, and some ketones from an external source on, on what that would do biologically? I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I think uh, evolution probably offers us a bit of insight. I don't think, I don't think our ancestors, at least most of them, would have walked around constitutively in a state of nutritional ketosis. You, you can't. Um, because yeah. even if you have spiking feeds, that will generally knock you out of ketosis because if... Even if it's protein. Yeah, yeah, just the protein alone will typically knock you out. So I wish we had better insight as to what our evolution would have looked like. And I know many people have spent countless blog posts arguing as vehemently as they would argue their <laughs> religious beliefs and political beliefs that they know the answer to this question. Um, well put. They're, they're, they're smarter than I am. I don't know the answer to that question. But again, I think my intuition would suggest that it's probably not an entirely unreasonable state to be walking around with a flux of intermittent ketosis. Now, the next question, which is one I, I definitely won't pretend to know the answer to, is how much of that is a function of the benefits you'd get from a nutritional approach alone where your ketones are endogenous versus an, the addition of an exogenous ketone. So obviously today there are a number of companies that are out there that can actually sell and produce these exogenous ketones. So to, as every maybe the reader doesn't know, there's three ketones. There's beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. Acetone is a metabolically inert ketone. We don't particularly care about it, and it exists in a one-way equilibrium or non-equilibrium, but from acetoacetate all the way down. But the two that matter are acetoacetate and BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Mm -hmm. And they exist in an equilibrium that tends to favor BHB. Uh, well, actually, it varies by, by physiologic state, so I won't even say that. Now, you can, you, can, in, you can make those either as esters or salts and therefore ingest them. So in theory, there's three ways to get these things because there's no acetoacetate salt to my knowledge. So you can either have acetoacetate ester, beta-hydroxybutyrate ester, or beta-hydroxybutyrate salts. The net effect, though, is you ingest these things, and within a really short short period of time, you will have ketone levels that go from zero, which would be the default state, to as high as three, four, even six millimolars. 
And this can last for, you know, a couple of hours. Now, I, I, it's been a while since I've mainlined exogenous ketones. I guess I was probably doing it before it was trendy. Me too. And yeah. I got to tell you, I don't really recall getting a huge cognitive boost, boost from it. it. It might be that because every time I was doing this, I was already in a state of ketosis. It might be that there was very little incremental benefit that came from it. And, and, and maybe the, the, you know, the better experiment would be if you take someone who's got no ketones, who's eating a high carb diet, can you do what you're describing, which is just put in a slight amount of exogenous ketone here and there and achieve the benefits? I, I don't know the answer. I was ready to launch it. We formulated a, a BHB salt product at Bulletproof uh, where we had you know the label done, the flavoring done, the mix of the different salts done. It even tasted good. I was ready to launch and I, I pulled it from the market before we, we put it out there because it turns out that half the the ketones in those salts are isomers and no one knows what they do. And the one expert I could find who'd looked into this, who studied with Hans Krebs, basically said he thought they caused mitochondrial harm. And I know that the the brain octane, the stuff that we make, also converts one step up from BHB. It converts into BHB in uh, metabolically, so it'll raise ketones reliably, but not as high as uh, as the salts. And I'm not certain that you need a huge spike in ketones uh, versus you want some. You don't want a huge spike in blood sugar either. So, like, we don't know having these starvation level of ketones turn on like that whether uh, it, it's beneficial or not. But I, I chose to forgo the, the business opportunity there just because I wasn't convinced of, of the safety, even though I, I, I tried a variety of those things and, you know, enough to be comfortable enough with formulating it. So it's, I think the jury's out on that stuff, but I do know if you can have some ketones present, uh, which I do with the oil and, uh, and some glucose, but not sugar, just, you know, some base starchy carbs that it seems like your cognitive resilience goes up. And, and that's something that I've benefit from almost every single day. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but I, I think there isn't science out there, but I, if anyone would know, I was hoping <laughs> that you'd have some great big spark of insight about what's going on with that state because we were wired to only have ketones or uh, basically be metabolizing carbs, but not to be able to do both. And it, it seems beneficial, but who knows? Well, I, th- I think we were wired to be able to go back and forth between the two quite easily, yeah. actually, because I, I, don't, I don't think there would be a state when we could be so fortunate that we would never go more than about 20 hours without access to glucose. Yep. And that's, you'd have to believe that that's the case for us to be specifically wired to be, you know, purely functioning on glucose. Uh, it's again, having not lived 10,000 years ago, I can't speak with any authority, uh, but it just strikes me as highly improbable before agriculture that we could have reliably assumed we'd have that much access to glucose. Yeah. Um, so that means we have to have had this capacity to quickly turn over uh, and, and, and utilize ketones. And then, as we said a moment ago, it's equally implausible to me that that would be the default state because there's too many times when you have to get out of that state. Yeah. So, uh, okay. and, and, you know, there's even more subtle stuff here, right? Which is like, maybe it's, maybe it's a function of where you're evolving from. You know, we certainly deviated long enough ago from our central ancestors to acknowledge that, look, maybe someone who's coming from Northern Europe or someone who's coming from Asia proper or someone who's coming from the Arctic Circle or someone who's coming from the, you know, the the high plains of Africa, you know, if you spent a couple hundred thousand years there, you know, you you might actually produce different phenotypes um, from each other. So, so even that question then becomes complicated. That, that stuff's interesting to me, actually. You know, you and I probably come from a pretty different genetic background just based on, you know, you're a white dude. I'm not quite a white guy. 
So what, what, where's Adia from? I can't even, I, I have no idea. Oh, my, my parents are both from Egypt. Okay. Got yeah. it. You're Egyptian. Yeah. Okay, so cool. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. My mom likes to tell me I'm a descendant of the Pharaohs. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess I need to do ancestry.com to see if that's really true. But point, point being is we're just, we're just, you know, you and I have obviously only recently come to cohabitate the same area right, right. Uh, on, on an evolutionary scale. So, so the question then is, isn't it at least plausible that whatever conditions are necessary to optimize your health might be different from those that are necessary to optimize mine? Uh, it seems plausible. It, it's beyond plausible. And when you look at some of the epigenetic arguments and and some of the studies on the, what I mentioned earlier, the mismatch of your, your mitochondrial DNA uh, with your mm-hmm. nuclear DNA, um, they, they've done some studies with sparrows uh, or some other species of, of finch or something that diverged a few thousand years ago. Some live very far north, some live very far south. And when they crossbreed the two things, they, they get this weird mismatch where it, it takes a few generations for it all to start working right again. So yeah, we, mm-hmm. we are the products of our environment, right? And yeah. it's uh, it's an interesting world we live in, that's for sure. Well, well Peter, I, I know that uh, we both have stuff coming up next. I've got one more question for you uh, on the show. And and I think your answer is going to be really interesting. If, oh, you got me scared now. <laughs> I've only you, asked, you weren't just going to say goodbye? <laughs> I've only asked like, you know, 489 other people or something. So, so you know, no pressure. <laughs> so, all right, someone comes to you tomorrow and says, Peter... I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. What are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you tell them? It doesn't have to be all medical stuff. I mean, you're a medical guy, but just from your life's experience. Uh, the first would be change the way you eat. The second would be change the way you sleep. And the third would be change the way you move. <laughs> wow. All right. The big three, eat, sleep, and move. All right. Yeah. And the devil's in the details. Uh, there I you mean, go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you, if you completely, completely optimize those three things, I think you're getting 60 to 70% of the possible benefit that exists out there. Very succinct, uh, well put and well thought out. Uh, Peter, uh, your URL is peteradiamd.com. You're one of the the leading thinkers and more interesting cross-functional disruptors out there, I I would say, just because you've, you've brought all these different disciplines together uh, into what you're doing with medicine. And just thanks for your work. I'm, I'm a fan and I appreciate the way you think about things. Thanks for having me on, Dave. It was great to chat today. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Check out Peter's work. It's actually really cool stuff and you'll have fun with it. And if you feel so inclined, head on over to Amazon and leave a review for a book that you enjoyed. And if it happened to be Headstrong, I wouldn't really object. But if it's any other book you enjoy, tell authors and people who do lots of work that their work is worthwhile just by leaving a review. It's an easy way to show gratitude. And trust me, us authors, we pay attention. Have an awesome day.
The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.